Okay, so I just want to share some more insights from reading this Billy Graham biography from David Aikman, uh, former Time Magazine senior correspondent. So I'm learning some interesting insights about Billy Graham and um, his life and I guess his approach to ministry and the opportunities that he came across. So I guess we'll go from the last kind of 10 pages of this book. Um, in, in his prayers, Billy Graham persistently implored God. It was an early example of one of Billy Graham's lifelong traits. Uh, he would agonize over important decisions. He would storm heaven seeking direction. Um, and once he had arrived at a decision, he would be quite firm um, in pursuing that decision. Um, but yeah, there was this big process of prayer in his decision making. Um, so one of his talents, he had a knack for picking highly talented and loyal associates, and he could spot out new ministry opportunities from afar and jump on them. Um, and it says one of the insights here is like he jumped on opportunities as if they would disappear if he did not. Billy Graham began the Western Suburban Professional Men's Club. Um, it was a businessman's dinner program that happened uh, monthly that featured evangelical speakers and drew big crowds, as many as 500 men at a time. Um, and he was eager and quick to accept offers um, to do stuff. And he accepted an offer without hesitation to take over a regular Sunday evening radio broadcast called Songs in the Night. Um, so the, and this radio program brought with it fame, uh, at least a rising level of fame, and this led to more invitations to speak with the result that um, the Western Springs congregation that he was a pastor at, so he was actually looking out for a church while doing all this, and David Aikman makes the point, um, the congregation that he was supposed to be looking after languished under a pastor who was so frequently absent on Sunday mornings. And so we start to see, you know, there was a cost you know, in these big ministry things that he did. And when I say big, I, I mean like, you know, to lots and lots of people, there was uh, a cost, which was sacrificing time and energy that, you know, some would argue he should have been um, directing towards the congregation that he was looking over. Um, but in the midst of that, um, a local businessman from Western Springs um, who who had been invited? Who who originally had invited Billy to be their pastor, defended Graham, and he said, "There is only one thing that I can say, and that is that God has laid upon Billy a special gift of evangelism, and someday he could be another Billy Sunday or D.L. Moody." Uh, Billy Graham was offered a position as a traveling traveling evangelist by uh, Tory Johnson. In a new organization, he was forming Youth for Christ International. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we talked about this the other day, that um, these, these Youth for Christ meetings were quite, you know, something special. They were um, truly outlandish in a lot of ways. Um, okay, keep moving, keep moving. Okay, chapter four, a national phenomenon. All right. So... Um, we get introduced to this guy, uh, 
Templeton, um, who was involved in the um, Youth for Christ rallies as well. And it says, though Graham always had a bigger harvest of conversions, um, he felt that the fruit being reaped were due more to their high energy levels and their good looks than to anything connected with God. And so Templeton, this guy who was involved in these rallies, was um, became quite sceptical of the whole enterprise. He, he notes there was a shallowness in what we were doing in Youth for Christ, a tendency to equate success with numbers. There seemed to be little concern with what happened to the youngsters who responded to our appeals. If the after-service dragged on, we tended to get impatient, wanting to wrap things up and get back to the hotel or to a restaurant for our nightly steak and shop talk. Billy, too, was troubled by it, and we talked about it many times. It undoubtedly contributed to his move from Youth for Christ to conduct his own campaigns. And throughout this time, Aikman, um, uh, Aikman notes, for Billy Graham, the desire to do something really big for God was growing stronger. Um, and it's interesting, you know, as time went on, Templeton started to challenge Graham on a number of issues, particularly the issue of creationism. So Billy Graham said that there were um, conservative scholars who accepted the biblical view of creation and, and he rejected Darwinism, the notion that the world had somehow spontaneously evolved from nothingness. Um, and he, and he said, Billy said this to Templeton, he said, I have observed that when I preach only the word of God, when I preach the Bible straight, no question, no doubts, no hesitations, then I have power. I'm telling you, Templeton, a power that's beyond me. It's something I don't completely understand. I just know I've found that when I say the Bible says, God gives me a power. This power, this incredible power. So that's why I've made a decision simply not to think about all these other things anymore. And then Templeton accused Billy Graham of intellectual suicide. And that really got to Billy and made him, made him think. And so it's interesting, like, I think... Yeah, I mean, one of the, I guess, current debates around, you know, science versus God and, um, you know, the current understanding of the, I guess, the the idea that we could have originated from nothing and, um, you know, that the, the accusation that um, people in Christian ministry are committing intellectual suicide by sticking to... Um, this idea of God creating the world and um, and Jesus' death and resurrection. It's, it's still much alive today. Um, okay, moving on. One thing I... that's interesting is... Um, There was a time when 3,000 people had come forward to indicate decisions for Christ. And Graham, Graham said, I do not believe that any man, any person, can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. Um, and it's interesting that he says, Tonight I'm telling you, uh, as we close, that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received, your sin forgiven, your burdens lifted, your problems solved. By turning your life over to Jesus. Um, 
Yeah, it's interesting, the problem-solve thing. It's bored, like, it seems as though his message sometimes bordered onto the more liberal, um, consumeristic idea of, like, your Jesus comes to solve your problems, but it's only just, like, a little throwaway line, but it's interesting nonetheless. Aikman makes note, it sounds today idealistically simple, but in 1949, the sheer directness of it all won over thousands. And I do wonder if we're living in a time where such like sheer directness could today win over thousands. Two characteristics of Billy Graham's lifelong preaching pattern were apparent in L.A. Repeated citations from the Bible, invariably prefaced by the words the Bible says, and references to national and international headline-grabbing events that prompted discussion of serious issues. So Billy Graham had this ability to storytell and to bring in, um, you know, relevant things that were happening in the news. Um, he talked a lot about communism. He called communism in itself a religion, an anti-God religion, which is interesting. So that's, I guess, he's, you know, I mean, that, that was, I mean, you know, a strong, like a popular, but Strong wording to take. Um, Graham, it says Graham's theatrical style of preaching recalled some of greatest, uh, the greatest preachers of past revivals like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Billy Sunday. And it's, it's interesting, he had to note, uh, Ruth, his wife, would sometimes kind of good-natured, good-naturedly mock him um, because of his theatrics on stage. Um, Graham's delight in using anecdotes, however, as well as frightening headlines and statistics, sometimes snatched with only partial accuracy from news reports that he had only half digested, and storytelling as a way of enrapturing his audience remained features of his preaching throughout his life. He meticulously planned and prepared his sermons, the occasional misquoted news fact notwithstanding. So it's interesting that, like, yeah, yeah, I mean... It comes off as a criticism in the current climate that he had a knack of using half-truths and half kind of, you know, a bit of fake news here and there to, um, I guess, embellish what he was saying. Um, But yeah, I mean, how does this all relate to church growth? I think it's important. This guy was a titan of, of calling crowds and thousands and thousands of people to come to Christ. Um, and so he's someone worth studying, worth understanding how he ticked what he did in some detail. Um, just like any any kind of successful business person of the past, anyone who had any major success in any field, anyone who's interested in that area today would be studying them and trying to understand them. And so that's what we're trying to do. Aikman makes the point that Billy Graham became extraordinarily attentive to his audiences. He was able to see from several yards away a listener's eyes blink and know then that he needed to speed up or slow down the tempo of his delivery to keep the audience's attention. Um, yeah, he knew his audience. He understood. He was observant. He was empathetic. Um, he's got a great quote. So he, Billy Graham was accused of being a young zealot and was, um, you know, in the context of liberal theology, he was setting Christianity back a hundred years. Graham's reply 
which he used countless times in response to the same complaint, was that he wanted to set Christianity back. He wanted to set Christianity back 1900 years to the zeal of the first century church. Good reply. Um, interesting, Graham, in, when he was in Boston, Graham took one theme to an extreme that was to haunt him years later, and the British media mocked him merciless, mercilessly for it. Um, he, for some reason, plunged into detailed descriptions of heaven, telling his Boston audience that it was 1,600 miles long, 1,600 miles wide, 1,600 miles high. And so, yeah, he had, he had some out there views and, and, and just like this, I guess, overconfidence to go into these kinds of descriptions. And I think he, he did regret it later. Um, Graham raised the premillennialist dispensationalist teaching of the end times, saying that the rapture might occur 50, uh, within 10 to 15 years. He used the phrase, wait till those gravestones start popping like popcorn in a popper. So, yeah, very, very weird and wonderful descriptions of the end times. And so he wanted his audience to have a really visual and near idea of um, Jesus' return. This is interesting. Um... Yeah, makes another quote about his wife. One of Ruth Graham's many considerable contributions in their marriage has been a healthy irreverence when Billy has seemed on the point of taking too seriously some of his own adoring publicity. So she kept him level. Um, yeah, it's, um, the, the, the Modesto Manifesto came up as well. So the Modesto Manifesto was this pact that he agreed with some other evangelists in, in, um, when they were in Modesto. And it was basically how to avoid the great snares that had befallen so many evangelists, indeed men of the cloth in general. Um, and so what they did was they set up kind of rules for themselves. So they, um, to do with sex, money, power, glory. With regard to money, they made it, uh, they made an agreement not to emphasize givings or offerings in any of their meetings. Um, in terms of glory, they would never, they would always accept the crowd estimates of local police or other officials and never try and make them up themselves. Um, none of, and they said none of them should make public criticisms of any other Christian pastor. And with sexual temptation, they decided that they would never be alone in a room or travel alone in a vehicle with a woman who was not their wife. And these rules together became the Modesto Manifesto. Um, it's interesting, like, he realised that um, after, like, an unfortunate picture in the newspaper of, of him smiling and, and someone holding up the offerings from, a, from a, one of the Crusades... Um, he realised that he needed to be on a fixed salary to avoid, um, I guess, bad press. And so what he did was, initially, he selected the figure of $15,000, which was the salary of a senior pastor at any large church at the time. It does make the point that by 2005, his salary had risen close to 200000 
which is on the high end, but still within the range of salary for senior pastors in large churches. Um, um, makes a point. He was su- Billy Graham was such a focus of media attention that for two years in the mid-1950s, more newspaper and magazine space was devoted to coverage of Billy Graham than to anyone else in the country, including the president. Now, it being 2020, you know, that's almost impossible to think of today. The challenge he now faced, Aikman notes, was a simple though daunting one. Could the hot gospel formula, apparently so successful in his home country, be exported? Could Billy Graham take the message to England? And that's what we'll read next. Okay, so there are just some reflections on this awesome biography of Billy Graham, his life and influence by David Aikman. Just read out some of the things that I've underlined along the way. I hope you found that interesting and helpful. Um, And again, this podcast is more of just documenting the process of me studying um, church growth. And so I hope you enjoyed it and see you next time.